It's Monday, April 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. This week, President Biden will reach his first 100 days in office, and polls show that generally, the public approves of the job he is doing so far. 53% approve of his overall performance, with the highest marks coming for his handling of the pandemic and the lowest marks for what is happening at the southern border. More people also approve of the administration's priorities, such as Biden's infrastructure plan. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for this and a preview of Biden's first address to a joint session of Congress. Next, after a roller coaster year of remote learning and school closures due to the pandemic, many parents may be feeling powerless as they face the possibility of their children being held back. This particular situation deals with third graders across the country who are not reading at the appropriate grade levels. 18 states have laws on the books where students must be held back if they don't meet the requirements, and many students have fallen behind. In Tennessee, some estimates say that nearly 66% of third graders don't meet English language standards. Carly Citrin, education reporter at Politico, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I'm proud of the American people, the volunteers who showed up to staff vaccination sites in their neighborhoods, drove senior citizens to get their shots. FEMA, the military, the National Guard, state and local health departments, and providers running sites safely and efficiently. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. We got a, an important milestone, I guess you can call it, this coming week. President Biden's 100 days in office. Uh, you know, it's largely one of these big symbolic things, but everybody makes a big deal out of it. We got some poll numbers uh, from NBC. We had some uh, Washington Post poll numbers as well. But generally, the public at large approves, about 53% approve of the job that President Biden is doing right now so far. So it's an important marker for the 100 days. So, uh, Ginger, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing. Overall, the majority of Americans still approve of the job that President Biden is doing. We saw him hit what you said, sort of the low 50s in terms of approval ratings. Very high approval among Democrats. Pretty good approval still among independents. And then terrible approval among Republicans, <laughs> which really speaks to the continued division in our nation. Right. We could sort of measure him up. He is not as high as the President Obama was at his 100-day mark, where he was in the 60s, but he's much higher than President Trump was, who was in the 40s at his 100-day mark. Yeah, let me fill in those numbers really quick. Uh, so overall, 53% of adults say they approve, 90% of Democrats, 61% of independents, and then 9% of Republicans. So that's where he said he was not doing very well there. His highest scores came when it comes to the pandemic, 62% approved, and the lowest scores come when it comes to border security and immigration. We know we've been seeing a problem there. That's right. I mean, I think we're seeing that number. I think it was 62% on coronavirus nationally. I mean, that's a pretty good approval number. That's an indication, especially when we couple that with the overall approval number, right? So um, people who don't think he's doing a good job overall, but do think he's doing a good job handling the pandemic. You have to sort of really like the job someone's doing to say they're not doing a good job on uh, overall, but uh, are on a certain topic. So 
Generally speaking, we think the public thinks he's handling the pandemic pretty well, that he's delivering on what he said he was going to do to try to abate the pandemic, to get vaccines out, to get people to wear masks. And so that's a really positive sign for him. And then the border continues to be a real problem. And I think that this is the type of issue where we knew that there's a partisan division and then I'll have his own party a lot of concern that he's not doing enough quickly enough to sort of reverse some of the Trump policies and to fix the problem that he inherited there. And just a quick drawback to the coronavirus numbers in these polls that we we're seeing. The bad news that we saw there is that nearly one in five Americans are resistant or hesitant about getting the vaccine still. So that's the trouble spot that the Biden administration needs to overcome. You know, we want to keep get everybody vaccinated, get to herd immunity, get this behind us, the pandemic behind us. So that's really a, a, a tough spot right there. When it comes to the uh, president's agenda, at least, generally people saw the COVID relief bill favorably and the infrastructure plan that Biden is pushing right now. They generally see that favorably. I think 59 percent say they support it. That's right. You know, the American public often has said they like big spending. They like spending proposals. They like things that build roads and bridges. They like the government programs that government funding. And it's a little trickier when you start matching that up with, do you want to pay more in taxes or do you think businesses should pay more in taxes to fund that? Uh, But generally speaking, you're right. People want to see things get done. And I think that that's going to really drive Biden's next hundred days is can he get Congress to sort of push through a proposal that authorizes a lot of spending on those infrastructure and other sort of jobs and healthcare related programs that they really want to see get more funding. And how does how do Republicans fare throughout all of this? They've they've kind of always had going back through the campaign and everything a, a troubled time pinning Biden down. You know, they'd call him a socialist. You know, they'd call him other things. And, and the message was always kind of muddied. I think the the only thing that really stuck is that he's old. <laughs> but but, uh, you know, so so a, a lot of times, you know, they're they're on their own things right now. They're passing bills related to uh, to voting access. They're focused on cancel culture, fighting with corporate America for staying out of politics, generally not necessarily attacking President Biden himself so much. Great piece from my colleague Alan Smith this weekend, looking at how sort of Republicans are fighting everyone but Biden at this point, including themselves and Trump and corporate America and voting in the states and everything but Biden. And that's because you're right. They've really struggled to find the narrative that sticks to him. And you look at what they said, you you referenced, uh, we often heard Trump talking about how old Biden was. Well, Trump had predictions had come true. Biden would not be president anymore. That's clearly not the case. Um, You know, we talk about how he was going to be secretly taken over by socialists. That hasn't happened. So they're still struggling to find an argument that they can make stick and that works sort of in the reality of where we are, which is that Biden is still president. He still seems pretty healthy. uh, And he hasn't embraced sort of the most liberal left wing of his party in terms of enacting policy. And then, uh, you know, coming up this week to mark those 100 days of President Biden's administration, he's going to issue a speech to joint session of Congress. Uh, This is going to be happening on Wednesday. It's going to have a historic backdrop. We're going to have Nancy Pelosi there and Kamala Harris standing right behind him. That's right. The first time we'll ever have two women seated behind the president when he gives an address to a joint session of Congress, although it's not going to look like the previous joint sessions of Congress, State of the Union addresses that we're all used to. There won't be people packed to the rafters of the House chamber. They're limiting capacity to about 200 people. They've divided it among the parties. Instead of, you know, eight of the nine Supreme Court justices, we're only going to have 
one person from the court. We don't expect anyone in the cabinet, maybe one. So not all of the crowds and the pomp and circumstance that we're used to these types of addresses. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is such a a really impactful and really heady, difficult decision. And it's not one that should be taken lightly. And it's not one that should be taken just looking at a couple studies and saying, oh, this is going to have negative impacts on my kid. Forget it. We are against it. Joining us now is Carly Citrin, education reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Carly. Thanks so much for having me. One of the most interesting things to me that has developed over the course of the pandemic is what has happened with our education system, with our students, with our teachers. We know it's been the big disruptor of our lives uh, the past couple of years now. And the education system took a huge hit. We heard all the stories, the roller coaster ride of remote learning, in-person learning, back and forth, back and forth. And then obviously the anxiousness that teachers and students have as well for contracting COVID-19. But one of the interesting things that you wrote about here is about students possibly being held back after this year of remote learning. And we've seen a lot of people say that a lot of our students are behind so far. You know, it it just was just so difficult to really keep that learning curve up. And there's a number of states, I think it's 18 states that have laws on the books that, uh, and this is key to third grade, which is also an interesting thing, that if they don't pass certain requirements in reading, that they could be held back. So this is a a thing that a lot of families are going to be looking for to this next year happening. Uh, So Carly, tell us a little bit more about this. These third grade reading laws were kind of a a fad policy a couple years ago, starting in like 1998 and in the early 2000s with Jeb Bush down in Florida, who was then governor. And the idea is that in the third grade, Kids are no longer kind of learning to read, but they're reading to learn, which means reading then becomes a part of all of their studies moving forward. You're thinking word problems in math, all sorts of reading scientific papers, science class, things like that. And so all these kind of states, more so, you know, over the last couple of years, started enacting these policies that say, look, if you can't read at a third grade level in third grade, We're going to hold you back until you can to make sure that you have what you need to move forward and be successful. And the reasons a lot of these policies were passed were kind of twofold. One, it was to help improve national scores, national test scores, and and boost state rankings that they could access additional federal funding and all sorts of other stuff. But it was also as kind of a way to hold schools accountable to pay attention to literacy and the importance that it plays in students' lives. And so the folks who passed these bills were kind of trying to say, like, we really need to focus on this really crucial part in kids' lives. And so over the years, these policies have been enacted and and pushed through, in some cases, without a lot of teacher or parent involvement, driven kind of at the lawmaker governmental policy level, not so much with, with teachers and educators. But now what we're seeing is, you know, it was fine to have all these laws in place and policies in place before, but now that kids have, you know, run into these learning loss or unfinished learning situations this year, these policies could kick in and and really target an outsized number of kids that was kind of unthinkable many years ago. So that's what folks are a little afraid of this year. Yeah, as you mentioned in your article, a lot of these decisions 
aren't made by parents and teachers or their children, but by state officials because these laws have been passed. So let's get into some of the bad news, though, as you, you're you alluding to right now. So in Tennessee, they say that nearly 66% of third graders are not meeting English language standards. So they could be flagged for this type of retention uh, under these new laws. In Michigan, one of the 18 states who also has a, a decline in literacy programs, pre-pandemic, there was about 5,000 third graders, they said, could be identified for retention. They say because of the pandemic, that number could have quadrupled. So it is a serious concern for a lot of parents and students. What's also really complicated and what we're seeing kind of at a national level is these patchwork of policies. So, so different states address it differently. In, in Michigan, there is funding and money for literacy coaches and for grade monitoring and to take efforts to help the kids so that, yeah, you may be flagged for attention, but, you know, there are good cause exemptions. There are things you can do to get up to speed. In other states, there isn't even a mandatory notification to parents. So in some states, the schools don't even have to tell parents if their kid has been targeted for retention. It's such a varied picture across the country. And, you know, in some places, there's funding for wraparound services and for all sorts of other things and summer school programs. And in other states, the money just isn't there. And there's a real fear that you could be in one of the states where you might not even know that this policy was passed. In Tennessee, it went through in a rushed session in, in three days without even a chance for teachers or parents to kind of testify on the bill to lawmakers. So from what the one uh, Democratic House member told me was like, you know, by the time she could reach out and get in touch with teachers and parents and tell them this policy was being considered, it was already done. So how is this going to play out? Because a lot of this is tied to standardized testing. So in general, and just my experience, right, going to school, you know, if a kid is failing his subjects in his classes, pretty likely you're going to have to be held back or try to make up some of those things. But this is tied to standardized testing. So They have to wait till the next school year and take those tests and then they'll decide if they have to go back. And then do parents have any recourse? I noticed in your article, they can request good cause exemptions possibly to keep moving their their students forward. But, you know, is that the only mechanism they have for remedying this? So the Biden administration this year has been really kind of flexible with these waivers. Some states have received standardized testing waivers that say, You don't have to test this year. Others have not received the waivers or their waivers have been rejected in part, which means some states are moving ahead with their tests. So it really all depends on what the federal government has said to each state's education department and whether or not these tests will be taken. But a lot of states are moving forward with standardized testing this year. And if so, then third graders are going to be subject to the tests. And if their governments have not made a decision or if their education departments have not made a decision about the retention portion, then it's going to go forward as planned. And that could mean that, you know, a year without preparation for standardized tests, even a a test that some advocates say doesn't even properly measure reading attainment could be used as the basis for a lot of these retention decisions. In terms of, yeah, these good cause exemptions, I do want to be clear that in most states, there is a way. So it's not automatic, you know, case closed, you're held back. Like there are in many states ways to either boost grades, attend summer school, show you're making some kind of effort to achieve and work with districts and school leaders to kind of say, hey, I I don't want this. I want to fight for my kid to move forward. This isn't the best thing for them and kind of fight your way out or, or chase down these good cause exemptions. But in many cases, these take a lot of time and effort and showing up to meetings after meetings. And for a lot of working parents, it's 
not necessarily part of the plan. Proponents of these retention policies, they say it's not about holding kids back. It's about improving literacy. But on the flip side of that, when kids do get held back, there's a lot of self-esteem issues that go along with it. There's stigma attached to it, you know, or the kids being labeled dumb or slow or think, you know, whatever the case may be. There's a lot that's attached to it by being held back. And, you know, that could affect them in many ways down the line as well. I think in speaking with the parents, even the parents who made the decision to hold their kids back, what they really wanted to emphasize with me is that this should be a family decision and this should be a parental decision made in concert with school leaders and and teachers and the student, you know, him or herself or themselves to kind of have the data and the research at hand and say, we know what could happen, but we are making this decision because it is what's right for us at this time. You know, it could be because of mental health issues this year, or or even in some cases, I've heard families saying, my child missed out on a year of sports that could have been really important for gaining scholarships or, or gaining sports opportunities in college in the future. And so what folks have told me is this shouldn't be a governmental decision. This shouldn't be a decision made at the top level because a governor or a lawmaker wants to improve scores. This should be a decision based on the individual student because they're the ones that have to go through this and confront the stigma and some of the negative consequences attached. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning, I've just been very interested in how all this has played out. I I saw it firsthand with my sister and dealing with her three kids. All three of them had to Mm -hmm. do the remote learning. And I was just checking up on her constantly. How are you guys doing? How are the kids doing? Just to see what their progress was. And luckily, they were okay. I mean, they were doing fine. I'm sure there is some deficit that they missed from being in person, being taught in person. But luckily, they would do their lessons and all that. But still, I feel like they were missing a lot of stuff. And, And you know, so I talked to my sister about that. I was just very interested in that. And one of the parents you profiled in your article, Sonia Thomas, you know, she turned some of her experience into action with this. She went through this emotional, complex kind of decision to hold her son back, but she made it in concert with him, too. He also agreed that they had to do it. But so she started an organization that would help other parents to deal with this type of thing as well. Parents should at least have all the information and data and policy in front of them so that they can help make these decisions, right? Like, this is such a a really impactful and really heady, difficult decision. And it's not one that should be taken lightly. And it's not one that should be taken just looking at a couple studies and saying, oh, this is going to have negative impacts on my kid. Forget it. We are against it. And that, you know, you really have to talk to your kid and take in their interest into account. And she said in her case, her son was like, I don't feel ready. I don't feel that I'm reading on the same level as my peers. I'm not ready to go into a high school, a new high school during a pandemic with new virtual learning and where I'm not going to know anyone. And so they made the decision to, to keep him back. And she said, it's a decision she does not regret by any means. But, you know, that being said, she said she respects everyone's ability to make the decision that's right for them and that it shouldn't be up to the state to dictate whether or not a child needs to be held back and that it should be something that's coming from the ground up. Carly Citrin, education reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.